Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. What a treat to bring you Dr. Susan Madsen. She is an expert in women's leadership and does keynotes and workshops around the world. And she takes a really, I would say, deep look at the total impact of inequality in the workplace. And I loved this distinction that she makes in this conversation about how equality includes us all, but doing so in a way that brings us all into the conversation. She is the Oren R. Woodbury Professor of Leadership and Ethics at the Woodbury School of Business at Utah Valley University, and she's also a visiting fellow of the Faculty of Economics and Business at the University of Zagreb. Um, She's published some books that are really transformative and important, Women in Leadership in Higher Education, Women as Global Leaders, and Women in Leadership Around the World. Her latest book is The Handbook of Research on Gender and Leadership. She's recently spoken at the United Nations. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation, but what I love is number one, she's passionate and excited, and I think you're gonna catch her passion. Um, And then second, she's super earnest about her own blind spots and the work that she's had to do around implicit bias and the ways in which we all have work to do around inclusion. And I think that when someone comes to, to this conversation with the kind of vulnerability she is, I think we're more motivated to listen and lean into the conversation. So Dr. Susan Madsen. So Dr. Susan Madsen, I'm really keen and grateful to have you here. Um, you've done some really amazing work, um, really studying leadership and women and have spoken at the, you know, presented at the UN, you've written some pretty amazing books. And I actually found out about you because of some research that a colleague of mine shared with me about how to to ally with women in the workplace. Yes, yes. I've been doing um, a lot more research the past couple of years on men, how men can be allies to women in the workplace and help advance them. So bring us into your world a little bit. Like, you know, you have this professional person that you are, how did you even get into this field of studying leadership and women and the workplace? I love it. I've been interested. uh, First of all, I'm a mother and with four kids. So I was part time through lots of years raising, bearing and raising four children. But about 20 years ago, started back full time as a researcher after I finished my doctorate at the University of Minnesota. And really, my doctorate was in um, human resource development. So not HR, not compensation in that, but really the development side, the training and development, the adult learning, the organization development and change, career development. So that development of people. 
So I've always been interested in that. In fact, another 10 years before that, I was in a master's degree program um, related to exercise physiology. And my interests in that were all around women's health and well-being. And so after I did my doctorate, I really kept going in the direction um, of really developing, thinking about how can women be their, their best. It's, it's very interesting. I feel very called to, to do this work on women. I was actually raised with six brothers and no sisters. <laughs> and so it, it is kind of an interesting thing, was very much into athletics and, and uh, coaching and all these things. Yet I just felt, and I speak and write often about women leadership and calling. And it can be calling from a higher power. It can be for people that are not religious. It can be that they feel like they're just made to do certain things. For me, I, I'm very religious and spiritual. So I feel like this is what I was prepared to do. And my heart, you know, you have this yearning to make a difference. And for me, it's, it's this direction. And, and um, even when I was 13 years old, I started to teach piano lessons to adults. And I loved helping people progress and helping people be better. And that's been a theme. I taught junior high many years ago, too. That's been a theme throughout my life. So probably uh, you know, a little less than 20 years ago, I really moved in the direction of women's leadership. People were tapping me a lot because I have really strong leadership abilities myself trying to get me to move in college administration, which, which I love some administration, but I felt that the research and writing and speaking has been the call that, that has worked best for me and, and what I'm meant to do in, as a citizen of this world. Mm. I really love how you're weaving in the whole totality of who you are as a person when you answer that question, yeah. right? You yeah. talk about your young life and being a mom and you talk about all these other interests that are the inputs for what shaped this sort of calling for you as well as spirituality. I don't think we talk about spirituality, at least not in corporate life, right? All that much. Yeah, a little bit. There's, uh, I'm part of the, what's called Academy of Management, about 20,000 management professors every year. And there's a whole track now on spirituality and management. So there's a lot more research and writing in the past 10 years, but still in a lot of conversations that people kind of try and stay away from that. But I don't because it's part of the wholeness of who we are and what we know from the research. I don't know if you're familiar with Parker Palmer's work. But He's coming hidden, on the podcast too. Oh, is he? Great. That mm -hmm. hidden wholeness. That, you know, looking at, at all of who you are and then being able to take that, you know, into whatever you do in life. You know, there's, there's an article, I can't remember who did it, a, a report a few years ago on covering. Have you ever mm. heard of that? It's yeah. a report on covering and how we cover certain things oh. when, we, when we come into the workplace. We cover our kids. We cover some of our struggles. We cover certain sides of us mm -hmm. and Absolutely. so that interesting of covering and what we feel like we need to cover in certain settings and that tension between covering and then wholeness and and bringing that whole self to really make an impact and contribute that there's this tension between both of those that's right yeah i know i i didn't have the words covering but i'm only more in the last two years 
conscious about a particular way that I would cover when I was in corporate life, because I was in corporate life for 15 years. Mm -hmm. I was the first college graduate in my family, and I used to hide oh. that. I used to hide that. Oh, yeah. And it's, and it's so, of course, you're, you know, you're a psychotherapist, so you know, you work in this background. <laughs> I work, I, I'm not trained by that, but all the work I do, I end up being, you know, this whole identity is, you know, exploring this identity, even from your adolescent years and growing up, that's all part of weaved into the work that I do. Yeah. So I want to ask the, the basic question. How do you define, before we even talk about gender or anything else, what is leadership? Or maybe I should say, what is good leadership? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and I teach uh, leadership courses. So we talk about this all the time on what it, what it is, because people define it sometimes quite narrowly. Mm -hmm. My definition is quite broad. But when you get to the academic definition, you know, there, there's a very big push, and I, and I support this, that it's a process. You know, it's, it's, and there is a difference, by the way, between leader development and leadership development. Mm -hmm. So it's a process where, you know, you influence people, at least one other person. It's, the, you know, the, some people will push like self-leadership, but that's really a different thing uh, towards a common goal. So those are the four elements, a process of influencing uh, a group of people towards a goal. And the, that's the North House textbook. <laughs> that's the, the definition. But when you look at that definition, so, so just backing up a little bit, I work with women. I've worked with thousands of women in different countries. I, I think I'm up to 50 or 60 countries um, now where I've worked with women or work with women from those countries. And, I, and through the years, I've had people say, you know, I want to be a leader, but I'm not. And I'll say, even in my own neighborhood, I'll say, well, didn't you just organize and run an event for 200 people last week, a dinner? Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, but that's not leadership. I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. it is. I mean, in some people, it's like, don't you, uh, aren't you the mother of three teenage kids? Is that not you know, leadership, you don't feel it is sometimes, but is that not a process where you're trying to influence people towards a common goal? Mm -hmm. um, and so helping women understand that they already influence and they already lead. And so instead of leader, sometimes we use lead, leader, leading, um, you know, the different influencing, uh, those kinds of things. So I really work on helping women see that they, this is not something new for them. They already are leading and that they can, you know, strengthen their impact and, and learn and grow so that they can impact in different ways. And maybe their leading changes, you know, when they run for city council, when they sure. run for public office and so forth. So yeah. I really define it quite broadly. Yeah. You know, I am now a leader. I mean, this organization has 7,000 volunteers. We have 92 city leaders. And I'm going to bring my vulnerability into this next question. I have noticed two threads in me. There's a very masculine side of me that bore witness to all the different masculine types of leadership that I experienced in the corporate life. And I can feel myself doing as, as or acting as if or being like the guys. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other part of me that is trying to find my feet as a woman who's a leader. And so my question to you is, 
is there a difference? Yes, in a lot of ways. I mean, for some people, when you when you divide and, and kind of talk about genders and, and the different things, there's many things that are similar. But I really have done research for years and years, and there are differences between men and women. And it's interesting that you use the word masculine. I use that, masculine, masculine and feminine. But a lot of people don't understand that. So when I'll consult or talk to CEOs from companies, They'll say, why can't I retain women in my tech company? And I'll ask them about their culture. And then they'll describe it. And I said, you know, you've got a masculine culture. That's why men are drawn to you and women are not. Mm -hmm. um, and or why women come and leave. But the interesting thing is most of them say, I don't know what that means. I don't mm -hmm. know what you're talking about because it's invisible. Mm -hmm. to most, to men and to most women. They just know some of them. I, in fact, women, the research has said that women who tend to, you, you know, have, have been athletes or in sports or speech and debate and those kinds of things when they were younger will not see that either. For me, it took me a lot of years because I was raised with six brothers. Right. And so I was in that culture and I, it was very natural for me, but then I had to teach myself to look, <laughs> mm -hmm. to look at other people. So that's an interesting, interesting, you know, words that you used because I don't hear that very often because people don't think about it. So that culture is often inv invisible, but many women, they're like not sure why they feel certain ways. They're just like, oh, I don't really appreciate this, but they push through that. And then they get in a culture that really does value the feminine a bit more or a mix between masculine and feminine. And then they know they feel different. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And taking it out of this binary, you know, I know we're on the heels of the Me Too movement. I'm a, yep. I am a self-proclaimed feminist, but I'm a feminist for all people because I'm, I'm also thinking that more feminine aspects of leadership benefit men as well. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, Athena, mm -hmm. The Athena Doctrine. Yes. And it is, uh, it was written in extensive research, extensive research in different countries around the world. And they just gave people words and they said, who may, you know, what are the best leaders today? And actually what the research found is that I think it was at least 65% of people really preferred, and they didn't know it was masculine and feminine, but preferred the traits that were more feminine mm -hmm. uh, and said, if men would lead more like women, the world would be a better place. That's what, the, that's what it ends up being. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, there are, you know, it's definitely a transition. Uh, with that, but what we know is people still think, you know, in that box that, you know, assertiveness and directiveness and and meeting your goals are more masculine and listening and soft skills and nurturing and those things are feminine. But in my own research, my first couple of books, I interviewed top women governors or, or women mm -hmm. governors around the country as well as university presidents. And their styles were actually quite interesting. 
across the board. I've, I've interviewed people in other countries too. Same thing is the women who are in those highly visible spots actually have a leadership style that's right between a mix feminine and masculine. And that's really a style that's, that's working for many now as we move forward. So where do you think we, so if you, uh, you said that you're somebody that likes to help people grow. So yes. where do you think we need to grow for our collective wellness in the workplace relative to masculine and feminine? Well, first of all, I, through the years, I've really focused on helping women develop, not necessarily looking at discrimination, the wage gap, and those kinds of things. And I realized many years ago that I couldn't just do that first without really digging in. And I spend a lot of time on media doing, you know, responding to questions about discrimination and and those kinds of things. It's all in a bucket. And what I realized about five, six years ago is that, and I am an educator, so I know a lot about curriculum development and so forth, that I realized that I needed to actually learn to teach in ways that are effective unconscious bias mm -hmm. training. And I didn't have a desire to do that. But in the past probably six years, I, I probably knew more than most people before that. But there's so much to that issue that I wanted. I took about five years to really work and read everything and get trained by the top in the world mm -hmm. in terms of how to teach it. Because about 75% of what's offered in unconscious bias training has been shown not to work mm -hmm. or to do some damage. So I was like, I need to figure this out. So one of the things that I've just come to terms with through the years is if we cannot raise our own and then people around us, our own unconscious bias, at least a few of them, at least some of them, mm -hmm. and bring them to consciousness, that we're just not going to move forward in the best ways possible to be inclusive in the workplace today. And you know, as well as I, that there's so many studies, we're in the thousands now, on the benefit of diversity and inclusion in the workplace for everybody, for the companies, for governments, and so forth. You get the best ideas, the most creative, you know, things, the best problem solving when you have a diverse team. So there's so much research about that. So I just came to the conclusion for myself, and it's been a journey, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not there all the, you know, we never get there all the way. Um, that in order to really look at the gender issues or all of these other issues that we need to do personal work on ourselves with understanding our own biases, because mm -hmm. most of what happens in this world is unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so that's, that's kind of what I've decided is the foundation of really good work on gender, really good work on most things is to, to, our own and then influence others on understanding those biases. So I've heard this reflection before that and there's never a place where you're fully baked when it comes to being conscious about your bias. Yes. So how do you get honest with yourself about keeping at it, right? And not sort of becoming complacent. Well, I would refer, there, there's a book, I don't know if you've read it, but it's called Deep Work can't remember the author. Hmm. 
broken on my shelves as we speak, but I can't see it. It's a yellow book. I see yellow. It's called Deep Deep Work. And it really goes through, it's really not a, work, a book about gender or whatever, but it really goes through the difference between deep work and shallow work mm-hmm. and really highlights that a lot of the work that's done these days is shallow work. Even mm-hmm. our students in classrooms, they're on their phones. You know, professors don't expect that much from them. Even in the workplace trainings, I've done unconscious bias trainings for companies and they start moving the tables around so they can plug in their laptops. <laughs> and it's like, and then I have to like invite them that I, I only do three hours because it's very interactive. And, and, you know, I invite them to go from shallow work to deep work. I said, you know, this is, and, and if they're made to come to a training and they don't want to, it's not going to work. So first of all, I would say in response to your question, that we need to, to even remotely feel like it's important or at least, you know, get ourselves ready to change because it's all about change. You know, just it's not just a mental process. So when we do this kind of work, we have to go deep. And that means head, heart, and hands, all three of them together. So we need to learn about them, but we need to feel it and we need to wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. And then we need to use our hands and actually do and practice and think and apply. And so that connection between head, heart, and hands with unconscious bias training and any kind of, any kind of you know, related trainings is, is deep work. And getting mm-hmm. ourselves from shallow work to deep work is a process. Most companies today, they're, I mean, you look in Utah where I'm sitting right now, we have huge numbers of tech companies and they're, you know, Google is here and, and Adobe and Oracle and, you know, we've got all very close to my house and many of them have everybody in a big room. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And people are talking on phones and te- people are all doing this stuff. That's like the, the, the cutting open office edge. plan. <laughs> yes. But guess what it leans towards is shallow work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you can't do deep work in those settings. So it's very fascinating. So companies now are expecting shallow work, but deep, good, creative thinking takes deep work. So, so I challenge companies to, to, you know, you can do part or, you know, but, but if you want anybody to really do depth and, and, you know, deep work and change in themselves, you've got to have at least some space for deep work and quiet, Mm. the busyness and whatever will you know, you can be productive, but only in certain kinds of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I you know, what's coming up for me, I think I uh, align with you because that's part of my work as a therapist too, right? People come yeah. in and they want a fix to a problem. Oh, yeah. So often it's about reclaiming wholeness, not fixing some aspect of the self, right? Some system. Yes. And the piece that is so challenging around unconscious bias um, is our just our disdain for discomfort because it's really hard sometimes to go oh my gosh I didn't I wasn't aware that I was doing that thing but it's I mean what I talk about too and you're probably familiar with the growth mindset fixed mm-hmm. mindset is that if we can help people really change into that growth mindset and I work with my students on this and I make some progress, but not a ton sometimes. Um, 
because when you really are in that growth mindset, you thrive on growth and change in yourself. So when you're defensive, when you're like, oh, don't tell me I'm wrong, when you have that attitude of, woe is me, you know, I'm having all these trials, people are picking on me or whatever. But there's this flip side that if we move ourselves to, and anybody can, it's a process, to say, oh, change. Oh, cool. <laughs> what can I do? What? How can I be better at this? How can I be a better listener? You know, mm-hmm. how I'm going to practice this. And then when you start practicing, and I did this with myself with unconscious bias training, and I've had a great time for five, six years on this because I notice things and then I tell mm-hmm. the stories. <laughs> I notice things that happen. And I've got a few great ones on airplanes that I've noticed things when I react and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder why I did that. And so this positive change, like, wow, you know, I am this person that's capable of so many things and I want to be better at unconscious bias or I want to be better at listening or communicating or doing these and then find, instead of beating ourselves up, find joy in making even small progress like oh I did that okay I failed but hey I tried so this attitude related to woe is me versus it's fixed mindset versus growth mindset and it's it's a continuum you know between fixed and growth but Mm -hmm. that ultimate is finding joy in the journey of changing and improving who you are so that you can contribute more richly and really thrive and help other people thrive in this world. So there's such a effervescence and exuberance that you have as you talk about this. I can imagine that you get people get people on your train when you, when you <laughs> give this talk, right? Um, yeah. At this, so, I, someone I, told me, by the way, someone told me after I started this global women's conference, and after one of them, uh, someone said, you should preach. <laughs> I was like, have you ever preached? You should be a preacher. I'm like, oh, I get excited about it. <laughs> it's very authentic. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. It's very authentic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> here's, here's where I want to learn something from you, because one of the things that um, in getting to talk to more people that I admire like you, I'm learning there's this, there are some thread lines that everybody sort of brings up in conversation. One of them is about the the hyper-individualism that is promoted in the workplace that sometimes makes us mm, maybe interested in a growth mindset to look like a good person, but Mm. maybe not necessarily to do right by those around us, you know, to not necessarily really create meaningful diversity and inclusion, but to just kind of look good. And I've been kind of thinking about that and I'm just curious how you hold that and what you have to bring to bear for the rest of us. Well, as you know, you know, and I see this play out in the various generations of my job, but also with my children, um, you know, these especially younger generations really are more privileged in so many ways and feel that privilege and feel that entitlement. Um, yet, on the other hand, you, you know, the research says the millennial generation specifically 
is really wanting to work for companies that are doing good in society. So there's this even wrestle within different people of, you know, different ages on what's about me. Everything's about me. Everything's about my development versus I do want to do good in this, in this world. And, um, and so that's something, even in my own students right now, this semester, I'm heading into my last week of classes for the semester. Mm -hmm. You know, you see that tension with both, but in conversations that I have with them, and, and I'm probably the only faculty in my Woodbury School of Business that really talks about good for mankind kind of things, or womankind, or, or humankind, I should say. Um, but some of them just don't get even introduced. I bring up topics about what, what is your calling? What, what is your purpose? You know, and, and help them explore their purpose and calling. Even having those conversations and getting them outside themselves into thinking about how they can contribute in the mm -hmm. world, a lot of them don't even have those conversations. I'm one of the few people that bring it up. So I think that can help because, and, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, at my institution about 18 years ago, I started the whole academic service learning where you actually get them out into, for me, nonprofits mm -hmm. and see oh my gosh, it's transformational learning for some of them. I remember years ago, I had a group of three men. It was a training and development class, and I sent them to do employee kind of work in a center where women who were abused came. And they just interacted. They were big, like construction workers. They just interacted, and they just a little bit, but they saw some families coming. They saw a woman with bruises. They saw and it changed them. Mm. It's like, I didn't know things happened like this here. And, you know, it's not just here. It's everybody, every place, right? Mm -hmm. But that personal, those connections, and there's a theory called transformational learning, Jack Mesereau, and, and what it says, there's 10 steps to really get people to transform in learning. And the very first one is called the disorienting dilemma. So that's what those three men had is they went, they saw, they felt, and mm -hmm. then they said, this is not right. Mm -hmm. I need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. So those experiences in connecting, maybe a more entitled generation, right? Entitled generation to real things that happen, real people that have needs. I think sometimes we're lacking there, don't you think? I mean, to, to, to get that from the head. I know that I agree with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I sit on sidewalks and listen to people. <laughs> I know. I, I don't know. Are, I am drinking your Kool-Aid. Are you kidding oh, me? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. I, I, I want to ask this question and I know it's a little bit of a detour, but you know, because it, it was the piece that got me to stalk you a little bit on the internet. Um, why, why do we need men to kind of ally with women. Why is that necessary? Oh, so important. So important. I'm talking to so many groups of chambers of commerce where mostly men show up and more and more are really interested in this topic. I mean, so many reasons. And, you know, the, a quote marks the right thing to do is, is one of them. But also, I mean, men do continue to have the power, be in those positions of influence and so forth. And unless men are allies along with women for this work and really help women, um, it, nothing's going to happen. So when I talk about 
developing women and change in the workplace, I come at it from two different angles. So one is developing women themselves. So I love that part. But then people in quote marks say, well, you're only focusing on fix the women. <laughs> but I still love that process because men and women are different and mostly there's masculine workplaces. I love that women find helping them find voice, negotiating, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. But if it's only about that, then we're not, we're going to be like hitting our heads against the wall or door, whatever the metaphor is. Um, <laughs> um, but you have to work on that. But then you also, even in a stronger way, work on the processes and systems and societal norms that are out there that really restrict the influence of women or halt the influence of women. And I, I, in my mind, just recently, I've been thinking of the difference between striving and thriving. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we strive to do this or that, but mm -hmm. we need to get into a place where women thrive, you know, mm -hmm. not just strive, but thrive, right? So you have to have development of individuals themselves, but also really work on the systems and processes. And men are the ones that often, and I'll, I'll put the word control in quote marks here, um, that have more influence in those roles in most settings, uh, in political settings and corporate settings, um, sometimes not in nonprofit because a lot of women are, are, you know, on boards and in, in executive positions within nonprofits. So unless we have really more men and women working together, that's the key. That's when you see the benefits, not just a bunch of women, not just, you know, keeping it with men, but when in equal partnership, men and women work together. That's when mm -hmm. the changes happen. And so I really, and I call myself a feminist. I don't use that word very often um, just because it's triggering um, to people. But a feminist, I've written a piece <laughs> years ago on what does that mean. And in my examination of a feminist, if you believe that women and men should be treated equally, that women's voice should be respected, that men and women should you should get equal pay for equal experience and work, then you're really a feminist. You know, you, there might be a, a more conservative feminist to a really liberal feminist on the continuum. But, uh, you know, I believe that good men and women, I mean, that we're all feminists if, if we really have those basic beliefs. But what I do different than some who would call themselves feminists is I do my work to lift women and lift men and look lift families, mm. not lifting women to bring men down. I do not do that. Maybe it's my six brothers and I love them and they're great and they're, you know, wonderful people. But I truly believe that as we lift girls and women, as we help them find their voices, as we help them find their confidence and use their voice and confidence to lead and influence, that we are lifting men and lifting families as well. Mm. It reminds me of this quote that an environmentalist friend had shared with me that the most um, thriving ecosystems are diverse ecosystems. And so it's by lifting the entire ecosystem together, not supplanting one, one species above the other that creates that, that kind of thriving. And I always, I yes. always like that metaphor. Yes, yes. Um, and so what is what are one or two things, whether it's a, around gender, it could be around identity or race, but what are those things? A couple just bullet points, and maybe you want to reference some, some things, maybe it's deep work, um, that 
we could all be on the lookout for to make sure that we're lifting voices of those around us so that we can all rise together. Well, in organizations, I'll just give you a couple. In organizations today, one of the subtle kind of unconscious bias things that happen are that, and, and the research is quite clear on this, is that men get more feedback than women. And the research on feedback is that so much of leadership development, actually, of things that move women forward and men forward, is receiving feedback from people you work with, from supervisors, and from managers. And what the research specifically says is that men get more feedback from supervisors who are men or women. So that's one like practical thing. And as I speak and, and mention that, people are like, I think that's true. And the data that we've collected from women say consistently, I wish I got more feedback. I know it's rough sometimes for men to give women feedback, especially if there's a tear involved. But they, <laughs> but, and, but they need feedback. And so practices that we have, for instance, one other one is that men often, you know, they, they hang out with men more, women with women. But if you're a manager or a vice president, let's say a vice president of a company, and you have a lot of people who are managers under you, if your practice, even unconsciously, is to grab one of your male employees and take them to lunch and just hang out and do things with them, there are all kinds of developmental you know, opportunities and conversations that the people that go to lunch with you mm -hmm. will have. And if you don't do that with women, then they are missing out on developmental opportunities. Mm -hmm. So really being aware of what do I do for certain people and not others? Mm -hmm. What are just my practices? Because if you just go with your gut, if you go with what you've always done, you're going to just go with who likes the football team you like. <laughs> you know, you're going to go with, with, if you're white, another white person. I mean, if, if you're not being thoughtful, that's what happens. So if you just go with your gut. So there are just inequities in terms of opportunity and development between men and women. But, you know, you put the race and sexual orientation and other things into that as well. The more thoughtful we are about our actions, the more we're going to, to really, you know, be inclusive in opportunities for all. And our best leaders in our organizations today could be women, could be people of color, but if we're not aware of giving them opportunities and give it all to maybe the white men, if, if I'm a white man, that's who I'm drawn to, you know, then, then it's just not giving equal opportunity. I mean, it goes back to that statement sometimes that the best runners in the world, you know, have never been actually found because they're still out there in some little village in Africa. Um, right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So just there's so many powerful things that can happen. Um, and, and again, that doesn't mean you can just take from one stop giving to one you can just you know we can enrich others by by being more inclusive and providing more opportunities to all all people yeah well i love that idea that we rise together right
Yeah. So I'm aware that we're at the end of our time. We have a bit of a tradition for how we like to wrap up this podcast. I give you an opportunity to speak directly to the 7,000 listeners who, by the way, show up with the intention to work on their bias. It's part of our training. And when we sit on the sidewalk, we're meeting so many people that are different than us because, because that's kind of the setup. Yeah. Um, so if you were to offer either a wish or a piece of wisdom, this is your chance to speak, not to me, but directly to them. What would you want to say to them as we close? Wow, that's <laughs> that's that's awesome. I've I've said a lot of the advice that I like like to give, but I just think I guess my piece of advice is to continue to to wrestle with your own identity of bringing in your past, but also looking at the potential you have in the future. And one of the things I especially talk to girls and women about are um, this, these sometimes traditions that we have that we're not supposed to be cocky or we're, we're not, you know, we should be humble. And, and that comes along with not, uh, sometimes people say, well, you, you don't have to be aware of your strengths or talents. One of the things that I really push back on, the more girls and women are aware of their gifts and their strengths and their talents, and you can be aware of those and use those and still be humble. Humility is, is just teachable. That's what it is. So you can be teachable and, and know those. But the more we're aware of our own gifts, our strengths, our talents, and then what our heart wants, our purpose and calling, the research is quite clear, and my own is included in this, that we can make a bigger impact in this world. So I, I think whether we're, I'm talking to men or women out there, um, continue to strengthen your own identity on what you do well, and then look for that purpose and calling. And there's many purposes and callings in life, I would argue, so that, that we can really make a stronger impact in the world. Beautifully said. What a beautiful offer to the rest of us, Dr. Madsen. And if there's Thank any- you that you want me to include in the show notes that I definitely will include the original research that led me to you. Great. Um, Thank you so much for all that you're doing in the world to serve what I would call a diverse ecosystem so we can rise together. It's really beautiful. Thanks so much. Good talking to you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, Tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.